Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same-game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. I am Jason Timph. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Hope all of your weeks are off to a good start. Day four of the NBA playoffs in the books. 
Lots of interesting stuff. Once again, we had two series get evened up. We had, in my opinion, the most uninteresting and fraudulent basketball team in this playoff field, the Atlanta Hawks catch another L on the road in Miami. And we just, there's a little bit of injury potential impact that we're going to have to deal with. We're going to learn more about Devin Booker's hamstring as the days go along, but that's a wrinkle that we're going to talk about a little bit. And then I'm also going to bring my guy Carson on later in the show. and We're going to play some games, including going back and forth about whether or not Jason Tatum is a top five player in the NBA at this point. And then this is another important note for all of you guys that are listening on YouTube. We are going to be taking questions from the audience. So please feel free to drop them in the chat and they will get asked in the third segment of the show tonight. But let's start with the Pelicans and the Suns. And so there, there are some themes for this show tonight that I want to get to. The core theme is going to involve traditional centers. But I would be remiss if I didn't start with the guy that I thought was the star of the night, at least in the Pelican Suns game, and that's Brandon Ingram. I have always been a huge fan of Brandon Ingram. I, you know, he came into the league super young and rail thin. And so in his first couple seasons with the Lakers, you saw flashes, but it was a tough, you know, kind of entry into the NBA for him. And then I started following him very closely in that season that he played with LeBron in 2018-2019. And that season gets kind of lumped in with all of the horrible, like everything surrounding the championship season in 2020 for the Lakers was a disaster. And that season gets kind of lumped in. But in in the way that the t- this season's Lakers team injuries are an excuse for what was actually really poor management and, and just a horrible effort from the roster, the 2018-2019 Lakers really were just horrible injury luck. That team, when Brandon Ingram was with LeBron, and when they had their role players available, when they had you know Lonzo Ball and Kyle Kuzma available, they were pretty good. We just didn't get to see much of them. They defended extraordinarily well. Obviously, when LeBron was on the floor, they were able to score well enough in order to win games. That was a really good basketball team. And in that season, I noticed several things about Brandon Ingram that I knew right away would make him a star in the NBA. He was as smooth and polished a three-level score that we had in the league. He could knock down spot-up threes. He could. Not, he didn't really quite have the off-the-dribble three-point game at that point. That's still not fully there for him. That's going to be another thing for him to build out. But he had everything from the mid-range. He had short-range stuff, and he could finish around the rim extremely well. And for a guy who was pretty thin, he played big. You know, that he, he, he's not afraid of contact. He's good at initiating contact and going through people's chests, even though he's thin, and finishing over people. And then most importantly, he was an excellent defensive player in that Lakers season. And then after the Anthony Davis trade, he kind of fell off defensively, and the Pelicans were kind of a shit show, and he kind of fell out of sight, out of mind for a while. That'll happen when you go from playing with LeBron to playing with New Orleans, right? But... I always remained a Brandon Ingram fan, and I was aware of the fact that that team was going through a kind of different phase of development. You know, they were in a rebuilding phase. And watching him tonight, and I've noticed this all season, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shout it out based on what I saw tonight. He's added another huge element to his game as a playmaker. And this is valuable reps that he learned 
that he that he went through during these years with New Orleans while the team was rebuilding. Tons of valuable on-ball reps that he wasn't getting earlier on in his career when he was primarily being used kind of like Kawhi Leonard, just a typical, you know, scoring wing who guards the other team's best player type of deal. But he built out that playmaking part of his game and now he's becoming just an unbelievable point forward. Which and again, this is where I'm going to segue into the theme of the night, the theme of this particular show, which is I'm always going to value wing players, particularly stars, but that extends down to role players. I'm always going to value wing players over traditional bigs because their ability from the perimeter to initiate action and with size to be able to see over the defense and make reads as a passer is invaluable in this setting. Usually in basketball, it's the guards, the little guys who struggle to create their own shot, you know, in, in, in tight space situations who over the course of their basketball development have become great passers. And this is an example of the way the game has changed over the years. And I think LeBron is the player that I've credited the most with this change. We talk a lot about guys like Steph Curry changing the game of basketball. The way LeBron changed the game of basketball was he normalized a forward being your decision maker. The guy who begins possessions from the top of the key with a live dribble and either going in isolation to compromise the defense or working out of pick and roll. And if he gets an opportunity to score, he'll score. And if the defense collapses on him, he'll make reads. LeBron literally bred that into the game of basketball. And Brandon Ingram is yet another player that fits that archetype. And in that third quarter, there's a lot of context here. Devin Booker got hurt. And I think that kind of shell-shocked the Suns a little bit. The Suns in general didn't have their best effort in this game. I thought they came out lackadaisical. They gave up six offensive rebounds in just the first quarter. This is not kind of an unserious start to this game, which is typical. You're a 1-8 matchup, second game at home after you had a convincing game one win. I get that all. But in that third quarter, when the game was very much in the balance, the Suns had leads in the second half. In that third quarter, Brandon Ingram, top of the key, isolation and pick and roll, making decisions. He did a mix of a bunch of different things. He ran some pick and roll with uh, with Larry Nance Jr. He ran some pick and pop with Trey Murphy. He worked out of isolation, particularly in transition. But just time after time after time down the floor, just Brandon Ingram breaking you down off the dribble and making decisions, either hitting a player that's wide open on the wing or scoring the basketball. And, and and then as the fourth quarter came along, he kind of, the, the Suns defense softened up a little bit on him because he had been making so many plays and he started scoring the basketball. And guess what? He can do that too. And that, that, that ability of that big perimeter initiating wing to control a basketball game the way that Brandon Ingram did in that third and fourth quarter is exactly why I'm always going to favor those guys. It's exactly why I put guys like Jokic and Embiid below the Durants and the Giannis's and the LeBrons of the league because those guys just struggle at that very specific skill. And I, I, that's a more complicated conversation for another time, but that's why I always favor those guys. And so I wanted to give Brandon Ingram a special shout out. I thought he was the star of the night and he picked up a huge win on the road in Phoenix. So I wanted to look at this Jonas Valanciunas and, and Larry Nance conundrum. So Jonas Valanciunas was, was plus five tonight. 
and had a good run there in the in the fourth quarter, co- closing the game, mainly because C.J. McCollum and Brandon Ingram just started making shots, and J- Jose Alvarado made a couple of big shots, so a shot-making kind of covered for it. But in general, in this series, they've played way, way, way better with Larry Nance Jr. on the floor than they have with Jonas Valanciunas. I'm really curious, after the stats update tonight, the, the advanced stats, to see, particularly on the defensive end, how much better they are without Jonas Valanciunas. Because they were just getting picked apart with Valanciunas in there, and Larry Nance's additional mobility just gives them more ability to cover ground. And it's not its not a coincidence. Over the course of the series, with Jonas Valanciunas on the floor, the Pelicans are minus six. And with Larry Nance on the floor, they're plus three. They've been better with Larry Nance on the floor. We'll get more into the details of that as the days go by here later this week. But that's a consistent theme for me throughout this entire era of modern basketball. We're going to talk about it more later tonight when we talk about Steven Adams, who's been disastrous for Memphis in their series, and they've been amazing without him. It's just a simple matter of the way that the game of basketball is played today with overall foot speed and the fact that these big, slow guys struggle in that environment. And I get I get why coaches use these players in the regular season to eat innings. And there's a couple reasons why. One, it's hard to play this style of basketball, this athletic covering a ton of ground basketball. It can be taxing on the body, just like Devin Booker pulling his hand or get, having some hamstring tightness tonight. So I get that. It'd be easier to have some of the flow of the regular season with these guys. And most importantly, most of the other coaches around the league will continue to use them. Like Golden State, they're not going to they're not going to go down with Kevon Looney at center if they find their back against the wall. But whenever they're not threatened, like in this first round series against Denver and throughout the regular season, they like to start Kevon Looney because it's just an innings eating option for them. And so on the night in night out basis of the regular season, you can get away with starting a Steven Adams. You can get away with starting a Jonas Valanciunas. You can get away with starting that archetype of player, but it's only because of the circumstances in that setting. When push comes to shove, this is the game of basketball. What you saw there in that second half with the Pelicans and the Suns and what you saw there for most of the night between Minnesota and Memphis. It's the big guy on the floor has to be a very versatile offensive player or be extremely fast. It's got to be someone like, you know, JaVale McGee is a unique example of a big man who has enough foot speed and can cover so much ground relative to other bigs that he's actually somewhat functional. But even with JaVale McGee, it's like when push comes to shove, you're not going down with that guy. There are exceptions to the rule. DeAndre Ayton is a guy that you can play. Guys that are superstars, guys like Joel Embiid and Nikola Jokic. Clint Capella, who's very good, very mobile, big. There are guys that can play, but they're not traditional centers. They're not plotting slow centers. They're fast guys. And, 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 you know, I don't know what the deal is. I don't know how much evidence you have to put in these coaches' faces to show them that this doesn't work for them to finally learn. I, I, I just don't get it. It's it's really really hard. It's hard for me to understand. But I, I the reason why they play so much better without Valanciunas is because this is a very very sneaky, athletic, and fast team. This has been a theme from the Memphis and Minnesota series, right? You've got all of these wings from Memphis and Minnesota that cover all this ground. Well, you've got Herb Jones and you've got uh, Trey Murphy 
and you've got Brandon Ingram. That's like your best lineup if you're the Pelicans. That's three guys that are taller than 6'8 with super long arms that cover a ton of ground. And so this is why I've enjoyed this Pelicans team as an eight seed so much more than the Atlanta Hawks. They're kind of like a, a very, very interesting modern basketball team. I was talking with my producers before the show. There's a really, really interesting conundrum. How do you fit Zion into this? Zion is kind of like a very, very different archetype than this group. And I get it mainly just because of the defensive versatility, the, the speed that these guys have to cover ground on defense. Like Herb Jones and, and Trey Murphy and, and Brandon Ingram are awesome defensive players. Zion is not. And you kind of have to play CJ McCollum. He's been kind of the perfect guard to plug into that spot because he's so, so, so good as a perimeter initiator. So you're willing to live with some of CJ's defensive issues. And he had a really hard time guarding Devin Booker earlier in that game. It was a really, really smart adjustment from Willie Green to go with Trey Murphy on Devin Booker to start the second half. I thought that was one of the reasons, one of the things that kind of helped the Pelicans grab control of that game. But Zion kind of getting plugged in, and you can't play him at the five because he's not a good rim protector. So it's like, what do you do with that specific? that specific conundrum. And that's a conversation for another day. But that that athleticism gives the Suns a lot of problems. They had 11 offensive rebounds tonight. It's a lot of extra possessions that can make the difference in a game. Chris Paul, after especially after Devin Booker went out, Chris Paul had a great floor game. He passed the ball extremely well throughout, but he struggled creating his own shot. Why? Because he's got Trey Murphy on him. And he's got all these long, lanky wings around the floor that are taking away his spots that he likes to get to. And so just just in general, the Suns are going to win the series. Make no mistake, even if Devin Booker's hurt, I think the Suns will win this series. The Suns had the Suns were really really sloppy in a lot of their details tonight. They're going to be fine. That said, like this is if you're a Pelicans fan, you should be extremely excited. You have a lot of different directions you can go here. And if you can find a way to make things work with Zion, you might be in fantastic shape moving forward. Again, well, some other time, we might have to get into that Zion conundrum, maybe after this series is over. One last note on this particular game with this Devin Booker injury. And again, we don't know anything. But what have I been telling you guys all year long, especially as it became, especially as we were talking about the Lakers? I said, you got to go for it because you don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to break. You saw the two best teams in the league this year, the Boston Celtics and the Phoenix Suns, get hit with late-season injuries. You saw Robert Williams go down. He might, he might miss the entire first round. He's probably going to miss the entire first round. I think the intel is, is that he's coming back in the second round. So what that tells us is that you know if, if Boston gets knocked out in the first round, it might very well be because of an injury, and they were the best team in the East this year. If the Suns lose in the second round, it could very well be because of a Devin Booker hamstring issue. These kinds of things happen every single year, and I hate them. Don't get me wrong. I, the, the, play, the, the injuries that are happening to these players in almost every playoff run, it's really depressing. Don't get me wrong. I get that. But this is exactly why you have to go for it if you're any team that's within just arm's reach of a title because you just don't know what's going to happen. Phoenix Suns were by far the most dominant team all season long. They look like world beaters. I picked them to win the title. If Devin Booker's hamstring can't go, they're going to lose. And they very well might lose to a team like Dallas in the second round. That's a serious, serious issue. That's why you all, like, that, like teams like the Lakers, who, the, like Lakers sitting on your couch, you blew an opportunity here. 
because the Suns were literally the only team that I didn't think you had any chance to beat. And they look like they might be compromised potentially. Obviously, we don't know for sure. But it's just that these, we don't even have to get uh, any further into that. So before we move on to the Grizzlies and the Wolves, I just wanted to remind everybody that's listening for the third segment tonight, we are going to be doing a mailbag of sorts. So in the chat, drop any questions that you have about literally any of the series or anything NBA related, we can get into that. So I want to move into the Grizzlies and the Wolves. I thought the story of this series so far has been Steven Adams on the floor and Steven Adams off the floor. I talked a lot about this after game one. When Steven Adams was on the floor, he was utterly useless. Couldn't guard Carl Anthony Towns on the perimeter. Couldn't guard Carl Anthony Towns in the post. Couldn't box Carl Anthony Towns out. He was just doing swim moves on him like a defensive end to grab every offensive rebound. And then in pick and roll coverages with Anthony Edwards, he's dropping back to the free throw line every time. And Anthony Edwards was just hitting pull-up jump shot after pull-up, uh, pull-up jump shot after pull-up jump shot. And he was getting run off the floor in transition. All of those same things that I was talking about with big guys. In 27 minutes this series with Steven Adams on the floor, the Grizzlies are minus 14. In 28, or excuse me, in 69 minutes with Steven Adams off the floor, they're plus 28. Utterly dominant without him and getting dominated with him. That's how big of a difference that kind of thing makes. And they literally started Steven Adams tonight and played him three minutes. Again, like I was saying with these coaches, I just don't understand. I, I, they, they, they just, in the face of every bit of analytical evidence, in the face of everything we know about the way the game of basketball is changing, they continue to make these kinds of decisions. What was the point? If You had to have known that the Steven Adams thing wasn't working if you pulled him after three minutes. And he was minus one in those minutes. It's not like they were getting completely and utterly run off the floor. So you knew the whole time, I can't play Steven Adams in this series. But instead of just making the adjustment, you started him for some reason. Which kind of changed the complexion of the start of that game and gave Minnesota a little bit of life there. It's just, it's just confusing. But that, the big reason why that, cha- that, that change opens everything up for the Grizzlies. Because Jaron Jackson Jr. is so, so, so much better. As a, as a drop coverage big, and he's, he can be more active and up at the screen to disrupt those pull-up jump shots. Anthony Edwards got, I think he took one long two on the left wing, but he didn't get any mid-range jump shots in this game. Zero. Because those drop coverage opportunities that he had with Adams just weren't there. To Anthony Edwards' credit, he still made four threes in this game. But like that's just a huge change in the way that goes. The overall foot speed of lineup in that second half when Memphis blew the game open, it was all transition. It's all foot speed. And, and the, the star of the game for Memphis, and this is something that I told you guys after game one. After game one, I told you guys, it's John Morant. After game one, I told you guys that I thought John Morant played a really rough game. Primary, just as a decision maker. There was... Draymond Green did a podcast today where he was talking about Jordan Poole and he referred to something called Jordan's floor game. And there's a bunch of different words that you can use to describe this kind of thing. I call it perimeter initiation. Mainly it's like controlling the pace and decision making. And those two specific things are so, 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 so important in these playoff environments. We talked about that with Brandon Ingram earlier. In game one, John Moran's decision-making at the end of the game was really poor. 
He seemed obsessed with getting into the paint, even though it's not what the defense was giving him. He was forcing the action and flying around and flailing and just trying to draw fouls. He was missing open three-point shooters all over the floor. It was a bad game from him. And what? And, and Anthony Edwards was the better perimeter initiator. He was the better decision maker. He had better control over the pace. And like I told Carson in last night's show, or two nights ago, you know, I, I said over the course of this series, I expect John Morant to eventually show that he's the best player in the series and to eventually get control of this. His floor game tonight was amazing. His ability to get into the, def- into the teeth of the defense and make smart decisions opened everything up for them. As a result, they were getting and taking and making the right threes. The threes on the backside of the defense that were there for the taking. The Grizzlies had 29 assists in the game. I think on like 44 field goals. That's awesome. For two-thirds of your field goals to be assisted, that means you're moving the ball around and you're making the right decisions. It's not just on Jaw, it's on everybody, but it starts with Jaw. And then there during that run, which again, I think Minnesota kind of let go of the rope a little bit there. But during that run, when Minnesota let go of the rope, then John Morant got loose and started having fun as a scorer. But you have to loosen up the defense first. And the only way to do that is to make the right decisions as the quarterback of your offense. Then from there, they have to stop playing janky basketball and they have to start guarding people. And that's when you have your opportunities to score. You know, we're going to talk about Jason Tatum a little bit later. And, and uh, you know, he's been double teamed a lot this year. You guys ever notice that like LeBron doesn't get double teamed very often? Have you guys ever notice that like you don't see the crazy traps out at half court with LeBron or the, you know, like he'll be isolating on the left wing and you won't just have like a dude just run over and hard double team because LeBron makes you pay for that every single time. If you trap him 25 feet from the basket and you make it clear that you're doubling him on the very next possession, he'll have a counter. He'll probably give the ball up to a point guard, work to some specific position on the floor where if you double him, it's a super, super easy read. He'll make that easy read and then he'll run back on defense. LeBron faces a bunch of different types of defenses, but you never see him get the crazy psychotic double teams that you see some of these other stars get because he's just always one step ahead of them. The easiest way to stop a janky defense that is loading up on you, just like Minnesota did, packing the paint on John Morant, is to just make the right reads and make them pay for doing that to you. They were better. Just overall, I told you guys that Minnesota played like an underdog in game one. And Memphis kind of looked like the team that had all the confidence in the world from their fantastic regular season, but they thought it would be easy, I think, in game one. And they got slapped in the face. And as a result, they got found themselves down 1-0. But they tightened up so many of those details in this game. They gave up 11 offensive rebounds in game one, only four tonight. So they did a much, much better job boxing out. And those guys were still crashing the glass. Trust me, watch the tape. Minnesota was still crashing every bit as they did in the first game. It was just little attention to detail for Memphis to take those away. The Wolves were only 29% from three today. I think they were 11 for 39. The rotations on the back end and guys flying around to contest shots. It was a completely different level of effort defensively than they gave in game one. And that's why they won. And that's why they tied this series at one. I wanted to move on to the Wolves for just a quick second before we get to our mailbag. And again, if you guys have any questions about anything at all, drop them in the chat. That will be our next segment. The Wolves... You know, in the same way that Memphis showed that they should win the series, and they demonstrated that tonight, they demonstrated tonight they are the better team. 
on a bunch of different levels. But I still think Minnesota has an outside chance to win this series. And a huge part of that is that when they kept Memphis in the half court, they still had a lot of success tonight. I told you guys I was worried about Anthony Edwards cooling off as a jump shooter. That didn't happen. He was 4 for 11 on jump shots tonight, 4 for 10 from 3. That's a pretty good effective field goal percentage. It's 12 points on 11 shots. They absolutely can win this series. They have the pieces. They have home court advantage now. I think, ironically, one of the strangest wrinkles of the series is Carl Anthony Towns. I tweeted out earlier today that the only thing that they needed to have a fighting chance in the series was the ability to stop Memphis in the half court, which they've shown, and Carl Anthony Towns being just the mismatched nightmare of the series, the guy that nobody can guard. Even Jaron Jackson had some problems with him in some situations tonight. He's probably their best option there. But Carl Anthony Towns got himself into foul trouble again. And this is what happened in the playing game. And like, some of this is just absolute ridiculous lack of awareness from Carl Towns. They're, they're, his second foul was on like a, a, a rebound play where he just was uh, just shoving a guy in the back on a defensive rebound. His third foul there, like middle second quarter. Again, he's got two fouls. He just went through a foul trouble situation in the play-in game. The team desperately needs him. He's their biggest mismatch threat. And he shoots a wide open three in a pick and pop at the top of the key and literally kicks his leg out and trips Xavier Tillman while he's running by him. Like, like, what did you think was gonna happen? <laughs> like, like, so he kicked his leg out, so he consciously made a decision to foul knowing that he was in foul trouble. And that's a weird wrinkle in this series. Because Carl Town, and this has been an issue with him throughout his entire career, when he's on, he's on. And there's nothing anybody can do with him. But like, he just gets, he just becomes a space cadet sometimes. And I don't know what the deal is. It's kind of, Anthony Davis can be a little bit like that sometimes as well, but that's a, that's a huge issue for Carl Towns, and, and it's a huge issue for the Wolves in this series. But, over the course of the rest of the series, if the Wolves can keep the game in the half court as much as possible, at least Memphis, if they can keep Memphis in the half court, I love when Minnesota runs out and gets their threes, especially for guys like Malik Beasley. But if Carl Towns can't figure out this foul trouble thing, that could be something that 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 sh shoots them in the foot and their chances to win this series. All right, we are going to bring my guy Carson on to ask some questions from the audience. Yeah, all right, Jason. We've got lots of good ones today. And the first one is related to something that you have actually touched on a good bit. And you did a whole thing on it yesterday and some of Nikola Jokic's defensive limitations and sort of how that maybe inhibits him from being the best player in the world. We have a question from James Michael Santiago, which is, what can the Nuggets do when Jokic is drawn to a high pick and roll with Stefan Draymond? Do you just let Draymond attack on the short roll? How would you handle that matchup with Jokic? That is a really interesting question. <laughs> I was talking... The gulp seems appropriate I was talking, there. Exactly. <laughs> I was talking <laughs> with Matt, Matt Moore from the Action Network a little bit tonight uh, about this specific conundrum because I don't think there's anything you can do. There's no good option. If you have him sit back and drop, 
uh, Steph's just going to come off of every screen and shoot. And Jordan Poole is going to come off of every screen and shoot. If you have him come up to the level of the screen, he just gets dusted every single time off the dribble. And guys, if you want to see very specific examples of this, just go to my Twitter feed and look at the little thread I did from the death lineup tonight. You can see very specific examples of each of these plays that I'm referencing. My Twitter handle is at underscore Jason LT. And you can see all the video of the things that I'm talking about. When he's up at the level of the screen, Steph is just going to beat him off the dribble every time and get a layup. And then most importantly, if you get him to trap, which is your last option there, if you get it, well, I guess there's one other. If you get him to trap, Steph's just going to hit Draymond Green on the short roll, and that's literally Warriors basketball. Draymond Green starting a four-on-three barreling down the lane. They're going to do fantastic in that situation. So your last, situ- your last option is a switch. So basically, you do a trap, is effectively a trap. Like Jokic does an aggressive switch on the on the ball screen, and then whoever's guarding the guard, whether it's Jordan Poole or Steph Curry, whoever's guarding the guard immediately just grabs Draymond and tries to take away the role, right? But now you're having Nikola Jokic guard out on the perimeter, and all it takes is one dribble drive, one straight line drive around Jokic, and now you're in rotation. And now Nikola Jokic needs to cover ground in rotation. And so I asked Matt Moore from the Action Network, I said, what would you do? And his answer was kind of funny. He says, he basically said, you, you have Jokic punish them on the other end of the floor. Yeah. <laughs> except, for he, except for he's struggling with Draymond Green right now. Right. You know, and, and, and we can get a little bit further into Jokic some other time, but like he can't shoot threes anymore. He's 19% from three over his last uh, 21 games of the regular season. He's 0 for 8 from three in the series. He's got gaping, gaping holes in his game right now. And, and I agree. Like the, the, the idea is you, it's kind of like I was talking about last night. Styles make fights, right? But it's not about the style that wins. It's which style plays well enough to win. And so, yeah, Jokic has a style of, of play where if he's dominant enough at the things that he's good at, then it balances out in your favor. But a lot of times it hasn't. And teams are... And as is always the case, when a star comes up, it's kind of like with Giannis, two MVPs, right? Dominant regular seasons. And then Miami completely neutered him in that playoff series. A lot of times after teams teams in, around the NBA get tons and tons of opportunity to watch tape and to see all the ways that Jokic can beat you, they come up with counters and they find ways to make things tough for you. And you're seeing that happen with Jokic right now. But the, to make a long story short, guys, there's no good solution with Jokic defensively against a good, fast, dribble, dribble, drive, and kick team. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think even exacerbating that further is the Nuggets don't have good enough point of attack defenders. You know, it's like it's enough to have to have plodding Jokic in the pick and roll ultra dudes who are elite pull-up jump shooters and also super creative and quick getting downhill. It's another thing when you're trying to have Monte Morris and Bones Highland, you know, apply ball pressure and all that. It's just, there's nothing working there. And Steph Draymond pick and roll in any matchup against any NBA team of the last half decade, I think is some of the toughest offense to guard, period. So I agree with you. I mean, I would shrug. I don't think that there is an answer. And even if Jokic does, you know, really punish them on the other end, I think we've seen the talent deficit here is just too much to overcome. Like, there's no way, I don't think, for the Nuggets to really make this a series at this point. That's the tough part because... The the under the like the underline to all of this stuff that I've been saying about Jokic, which is all true. Everything I'm saying about Jokic is even uh, uh, even a, a separate from the roster issues. These are legit flaws. No matter what you put around Jokic, he's still going to be slow. He's still going to struggle to cover ground on the perimeter, and he's still going to have you know the inability to shoot and struggle with length on on the offensive end, right? But 
he does have a huge talent disadvantage here. So I was another little thing I was talking about with Matt Moore. I said to him, I said I would love to see like Jokic on a 2011 Mavericks type of roster, you know, like a roster that covers so much ground defensively and almost puts him in a, in a situation where he's where, where his shortcomings are harder to exploit because the guys around him kind of fill those gaps. I absolutely think he could win a championship in that type of role, just like Dirk did. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, we saw stretches this year where Jokic was really exerting effort defensively. And I think it, you know, regressed a bit as he probably just got fatigued from carrying the ridiculous offensive load every night. But I think you can put a top 10 defense around Jokic and then you could have the best offense in the league. And the Nuggets with their full personnel, I mean, wouldn't have been far off from that pace this year at all, I don't think. So I agree with you. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see if they do prioritize trying to add quality 3 and D wings where they can. Cap is an issue, but maybe through the draft and whatnot, MLE and stuff like that. Okay, so we mentioned the nightmare of guarding the Warriors and just how impressive they have been through two against the Nuggets. We have a question from Kyle's Takes, which is, if the Warriors play the way they do on a more consistent basis, are they the favorites out of the West or are they your favorites to win it all even, Jason? What do you think? Definitely not the favorites to win it all. They would become my favorites to win the West if Devin Booker could not play in a series against them. Um, but you know, I think that, you know, I I watched the tape on that death lineup, uh, run there in the second quarter and don't get me wrong. Like it, it was there, there on offense in particular, they were magnificent. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, but Denver got a lot of wide open looks on the other end that they missed. It kind of felt like it almost felt like when that lineup checked in, like the crowd knew it, the warriors knew it. And Denver knew it like, okay, here we go. Like everyone's going to be talking yeah. about here's the new death lineup. And it was almost like that got in their heads. And, and particularly on like on their first two possessions, like Aaron Gordon and uh, Will Barton both forced, even though there were easy pocket passes to Jokic, they both forced like crazy wild floaters. There was a play where like Aaron Gordon, for whatever reason, just deci- like Jokic had the ball at the top of the key going against someone other than Draymond. Draymond was sitting right under the basket, like at the charge circle, and Aaron Gordon was like, I'm going to do a quick duck in on Draymond. Okay, on Draymond Green, the best defensive player in the entire world, he was like, I'm going to do a duck in on Draymond Green, and Draymond Green just took a charge, and he fell over, and we were going the other way. And then on a a couple other possessions in the run, they got wide open looks. I'm not trying to undercut what that lineup can do, but what I'm saying is they still have some issues, and they have big flaws on the interior that some teams are going to be able to exploit, and they still don't have that big rim-pressuring wing, the guy that can kind of put his back to the basket when things really bogged down, kind of like a boy on Bogdanovich, like we talked about last night, that can kind of create shots for himself. I'm very high on the Warriors. I absolutely think they're capable of beating even the Suns at full strength. I just still wouldn't pick them over the Suns while they're healthy, and I certainly wouldn't pick them over a team like uh, Boston coming out of the East, for instance, or even Milwaukee. Yeah, I think you're right in that it would be premature to say, you know, based off the really impressive couple games that they are the title favorites. To me, I think that honestly, their ability to really contend for that claim is what level we continue to get out of Jordan Poole. Because that was kind of always my biggest question about the Warriors is as great as they were defensively with Draymond healthy and as much as Steph's just sheer gravity offensively and ability could make things flow and their unselfishness and Draymond facilitating, great teams need that second real like star level creator. 
right? And Poole was not that until the All-Star break. And then since then, he's been 23 and a half a game on 63% true shooting. And in the playoffs has been unbelievable. So I think that I really like their depth. I think they're 31 when Draymond and Steph both play this year. So to me, it's about Poole. I mean, do you think like, like, is he the key if this team is going to try to go out and actually win the title? Absolutely. And I, I thought Draymond, and if you guys haven't seen this yet, you got to check it out. Uh, Draymond Green talked, uh, broke down the Nuggets series. You can find it on YouTube and on the Draymond Green podcast feed. Um, and he talked about uh, Jordan Poole's floor game. But one of the specific things that he talked about that's something that I've been preaching about a lot on this show, and I did a whole video about for Warriors fans about a month, month and a half ago when Jordan Poole was kind of starting to get this run going. I talked about how Jordan Poole is starting to dictate similar coverages that Steph had. And Draymond Green went and said exactly that on his show uh, today, which I which I, I appreciated because it's something that I've noticed. It's like, you know, when Steph compromises a defense to such a dramatic extent and Jordan Poole's ability to do the same thing, it just it, it makes the, the team literally unguardable in so many different ways. There was a play in the... Uh, there was a play in that run, the, that, the death lineup run in the second quarter, where Andrew Wiggins was on the left wing. And Andrew Wiggins, remember, is shooting 39% from three over the course of this regular season. And Steph and Clay are, uh, Steph's kind of on the other side of the wing, or a little bit, a little bit away from Wiggins, and, and Clay's in the corner. And Draymond Green has the ball at the top of the key. And Jordan Poole just does like a V cut out to the perimeter. I think Aaron Gordon was the one guarding him. Draymond throws the ball to Jordan Poole and Aaron Gordon has to panic close out to Jordan Poole because that's the same thing you have to do with Steph. And as a result, Jordan Poole just does a basic rip through to the baseline and nobody's home. Literally nobody's home because who are you helping off of? Are you leaving Steph? Are you leaving Clay? Are you leaving Andrew Wiggins? It's like having another guy that compromised the defense to that extent. It captures at least offensively. You're never going to get the and not, not, and, Kevin Durant is just so incredible when the game bogs down as like an isolation score that this is probably blasphemous to say. But at least in the open court, open flow, like Steph brand of basketball, Jordan Poole brings some similar scoring punch that allows them to hit some offensive heights that are very similar to that. I'm 100% with you that Jordan Poole does dictate the ceiling in a bunch of different ways. But even with it, to me, the Jordan Poole thing is more exciting for the Warriors in the long term. Because so much about this team and their fan base has been about the two eras, right? Like you've got the existing era of Steph, Clay, and Draymond, but then you've got Jonathan Kaminga and James Wiseman as like the future. And you kind of get caught straddling that line. And in my opinion, you lose both eras when you do it that way. I've hated that approach right. from general management groups all the time. But Jordan Poole becoming like a legitimate all-star level player over the course of those last couple months, that bridges that gap. That is yeah. an influx of talent that allows you to accomplish what you would have accomplished. Like, you know, like had they traded Jonathan Kaminga for CJ McCollum or something like that, you would have had a similar vibe, right? So you get, you, now you've accomplished what you would have accomplished by trading away your young guys for a star and you still have the young guys. So it's, 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 a, it's obviously a huge ceiling raiser for the long run. But within the confines yeah. of this specific postseason, I still think they're too thin on the wing and under the basket to be the favorite. That doesn't mean they can't win. It just means I don't have them as the favorite. All right. We've got another question. This one from Connor Phillips. 
The Hawks fell down to nothing today. You know, they were able to make a bit of a push, but pretty consistently seemed to be outclassed by the Heat. So, Jason, are there any adjustments the Hawks could make to have a better shot in that series, in your opinion? Yeah, so they would need to find a time machine, and they would need to go back to October, and then he would, they would need to practice playing defense for yeah, six months. I agree. And then they might have a better chance. They, and in the first quarter, they did a better job flying around on the wing, and then Trey Young played better which we knew he would. That was just an utterly disastrous game one. And you could argue fatigue played a role in that as well after having to work their way through the, pl- the through the playing tournament. But in general, I tend to think that like they are the odd, they are the sore thumb in this entire postseason run. All eight teams out West are legit. You know, I, I, even the jazz who are fraudulent are not to the same extent as, as, as the Atlanta Hawks are. It's in the Eastern conference with uh, the, the Atlanta Hawks are like the sore, they're the sore thumb in this playoff run. They have no business. They are utterly, they, they are outclassed by all other 50, every one of the other 15 teams. I, I, I can't wait for that series to be over just because it's like watching it. I just feel like it feels like watching regular season basketball on a bunch of different levels. I do. Jimmy Butler looks fantastic though. I will say that. And it's amazing how well he thrives in this playoff environment. I, I tend to think that he's a little bit more hot and cold than people realize. Like he tends to yeah. average twenty. Like he's his averages are always like 21, 22 points, right? But right. it's like it usually comes in the form of like forty, and then ten, and then forty, yeah. and then ten. <laughs> like that's kind of the Jimmy Butler experience. Like if you catch Jimmy Butler on the right night, he looks like he could be one of the best players in the league. Well, Jason, that is just beautifully tied in with another question that we have. This one from PG in the chat, and it is, can Jimmy Butler and the Heat get revenge versus the Sixers next round? Oh, man, that's a good question. That um, I will certainly be rooting for them, per my rant last night about how I want the Sixers to lose for so many different reasons. They they present uh, a bunch of different uh, they, they present a much a, a bunch of better defensive options. The things that I've been talking about with the way that I want Toronto to guard the Sixers, I think Miami will better be able to pull off. Also, Bam Adebayo gives you at least a half decent body to throw at J- Joel Embiid in single coverage, which Toronto has not had at all. I do think that this is the issue, though. As we talked about with Toronto. They needed to get out and transition because Philly's a bad transition defense. But in the half court, they're a great defense because if you can get if you can get their defense set, Joel Embiid, it causes so many problems underneath the basket, and they have enough size on the wing to and mobility on the wing to cause teams problems. The issue is my issue with Miami all season has been their half court offense. Specifically when they go with their guys that they have to play in the postseason. Like, yeah, they can play. You know, like they can play Max Struess and Tyler Harrow and Duncan Robinson all at the same time and have a ton of shooting. And then, yeah, like guys like Jimmy Butler are going to feast and it's going to look great, but they can't guard well enough with that lineup. Like they're going to have to go down with Bam and Jimmy Butler and, and PJ Tucker. And with that lineup, they suddenly have two guys that you can flat out ignore and a third that you probably can't ignore as well. And that's Jimmy Butler. So at least in, as a perimeter jump shooter. So what ends up happening there is now you've got you've got Joel Embiid camping under the basket the entire time in the half court because it was just like Anthony Davis did to Bam Adebayo. So unfortunately, as much as I would love to see Philly lose a second round series, uh, and it, a first round series isn't over, but it looks like it certainly could be. 
But as much yeah. as I'd like to see it, they just got they caught two really good draws. They got a Toronto team that combusted and got hurt, and Nick Nurse might have had a game plan that I just disagreed with. And then they're going to catch a Miami team in the second round that can't score in the half court. So that might be enough to send the Sixers to the conference finals, where hopefully, mercifully, they will lose. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm aligned with you there. I totally agree on what's been the issue with the Heat for so much of the year, and it's like there's a lot of days, a lot of days where Tyler Hero is their best offensive player. And that's a lot to ask to then go out and like contend for a title with that. You know, as improved and nasty as he is, you know, the efficiency isn't consistent enough. The ability to really dictate the flow of an offense isn't totally there with him. So I think I'm with you. There's just more easy offense with the Sixers. One interesting thing, though, I think you mentioned Bam as an option with Embiid. I mean, I don't know if there are many teams better equipped to handle Harden and we have seen the heat just swarm Trey Young out of the pick and roll we have seen how incredible Bam is switching there obviously many times over but that to me feels like with the multiple guys they can throw at him on the perimeter with obviously Bam switchability that could really be a nightmare for Harden he's gonna have to work for buckets and as we've seen I mean you know he's 18 a game on 35 percent shooting over his last 10 so that could definitely I think be a little bit of a drop-off spot for him yeah, the interesting thing is going to be the game plan because one yeah. of the big reasons why, like I was listening to Zach Lowe earlier today and he was talking about how ra the Raptors need to jank things up even more and get even crazier with the way that they guard Harden uh, the Harden and Bead stuff. And I could not disagree more. Like, I, I just think, like, who, who have been the unsung heroes of the series for Philly? It's been Tobias Harris and Tyrese Maxey. Maxi more flashy so, but Tobias Harris is having a really solid series as a as a catch and shoot guy and as a guy who's attacking mismatches in the post. He's doing a lot of like quick duck ins, you know, like when he catches in transition, if he catches a small guy on him, like they'll just kind of send Embiid out to the perimeter and, and Tobias will just duck in for a quick layup and stuff. And like those two guys are really good players. Is Tobias overpaid? Yes, but he's a really good player. And Tyrus Maxi is a really good player. And so if you want to play, if you want to let them play four on three on the back end all day long, they're probably going to beat you. And so I agree with you that the Heat are equipped way better than Toronto is to cause James Harden problems. The question is, is are they going to, are they going to, are they going to send multiple bodies at James Harden and all these actions? Or are they going to uh, play real basketball in those environments and then throw the kitchen sink at Embiid? Like stupid stuff. Like I talked, I talked in last night's show about that Tyrese Maxey uh, pick and pop with uh, with Harden. They're running a pick and pop with two guards, okay? Yeah. And the screener, in this case, Maxi is the better of the two players in this series. You know, you uh, James Harden, uh, that's a whole other conversation. If you want to, obviously his playmaking probably makes him a better player than Maxi. but in terms of like scoring the basketball, Maxi's mm -hmm. a better player right now because Harden doesn't have that burst. And like you're seeing the Raptors like, like panic about leaving Harden in a switch and, get, and giving... Uh, a maxi straight line drives to the basket. It's just bad strategy. So I agree with you, but like I, I want to see at least one team in this postseason run dare James Harden to do all the scoring. I just want to see it. I just want to see what it looks like. <laughs> I mean, I think that you are totally justified in that. Like you said, I mean, Maxi, I think is shooting sixty nine percent in this series. Harris is shooting sixty four percent. Those guys are among the best third and fourth options of the league, and Harden is. Well, actually scoring as like the fourth option. He's fourth among six, not doing so efficiently. So I think that'd be very interesting. 
All right, we're going to switch gears here with a question from Mason R that I really, really hope does not come from personal experience. Jason, what is the moral responsibility of a person to, quote, save a stranger from a seemingly harmful cult? What are your thoughts? (laughs) Oh my gosh, to save a stranger from a... Oh my gosh, that's a really, really weird question. (laughs) Um. I don't know. Like, what kind of cult are we talking about here? Is it like a religion Ooh. thing, or is it like uh, a, like Mason a like a weird specify. nefarious behavior thing? Okay, uh, religion's weird for me because I, I you could argue that every religion is a cult to some level, you know. So, like, and we don't want to get too much further into that detail. So, I think if it was a religious thing, I'd probably just have private conversations with my wife about how crazy the person was. But yeah. if it was like, if it was like, you know, like, like if my buddy came to me tomorrow and decided that he was going to become a vegan, not as a health choice, but because he decided that like animals shouldn't be eaten or something like that, I'd probably have a conversation with him. Mm-hmm. Is that cultish behavior? Veganism? Dude, I'm trying to come you up with like so? a G-rated way to. I'm trying to come up with a G-rated way to talk about okay. something like. I, I mean, like, do you want me to yeah. come out and say he's joining a weird sex cult, Carson? Do you want me to say that? Because if you want me to, I will. Okay. <laughs> First of all, not my question, Mason's question. But <laughs> here's the the key descriptor I think: seemingly harmful, but also Mason says a stranger, and I'm not even really sure how I would have an intimate enough experience with a stranger to say, Hey buddy, I don't really like your life choices, you know? So that's a good point. The stranger throws it off. Yeah, it does. So I'm thinking there's not that much of a moral responsibility. I mean, if I see somebody walking into like a goat sacrifice ceremony of some kind, I'm probably just going to assume that's their (laughs) vibe and go on my merry way. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Man, I'm hundred percent with you. Okay, we've got another weird one here, not basketball related, but we had multiple people talking about the Kardashian curse in the chat, obviously, with what happened to Book with the hamstrings. So do you believe in curses? I don't believe in curses. I do believe in things like karma. So like I do believe in like the basketball gods or like just the general philosophy of like uh, what goes around comes around. Uh, but I do not believe in curses. I'm not a very superstitious guy. I'm not su- like even when I was playing in college, like I was never superstitious about specific things that I would do. But I was always a very I was a man of my routine, though. And I have always felt weird mm-hmm. about that routine. Like, like for instance, even with these late night shows, I've been doing late night shows now for pro- I've probably done over 100 of them over the last uh, year and a half or so. And like when I take a late afternoon nap, I just find that I'm more awake for those kinds of things. And so like if I don't get my late afternoon nap, like today I did not get my late afternoon nap. And like I was paranoid all night. I'm like, am I going to be exhausted when I'm in front of what I'm doing the show? So like I'm a man of my routine and I do believe in karma, but I am not a superstitious guy by any stretch of the imagination. I'm with you all the way there, but I will say I respect somebody who tries to curse another person. You know, you see people every once in a while in the stands of a game and they're doing some sort of weird voodoo motion and i (laughs) i can appreciate that (laughs) all right well speaking of the basketball gods jason we uh have had a bit of a basketball god on the court in the making in jason tatum so let me ask you do you think he's a top five player on the planet right now i do not now 
this is this is kind of falls in line perfectly with the conversation that we had yesterday surrounding Jokic. And I talked a lot about how I hate the rush that people are in to crown these people when they're having a good stretch of basketball. And like, like let's talk about Jason Tatum for a second. Do you think that last year after the Celtics went out with a whimper in the first round against the Nets, do you guys think that Jason Tatum was a top five player at that point? Cause I don't. And like, the guys we're trying to put him over have had a ton of success in the league for a long time, right? Like the reason why I wanted to talk about this tonight was because it's been kind of a hot topic around the league tonight. Zach Lowe said that there were only four players that were definitively above him. You had Tim Bontemp say that he was the third best player in the league. I, I saw, um, you know, it's been it's been a bit. Bill Simmons was talking about how he's a top tier superstar on his show as well, and there's some homerism going on. There is a couple of Boston guys in that group, but it's like my thing is like w- he's been playing really well since January, like unbelievably well since January. And yeah, strictly when I'm looking in that window of time, I'm seeing one of the best perimeter defenders in all of basketball who's also very good off the ball as a defensive player, who also can grab contested rebounds when his team needs him to within their scheme. And then on the other end of the floor, we have a dynamic three-level scorer. He's improved massively with his handle and his ability to get into the paint. So we have an incredible three-level scorer who in the last couple of months has done a great job accepting the double team and allowing and passing out of it and helping make plays for his teammates. So on the surface, that all looks amazing. But it's been a couple of months, guys. Like, what? Like, how ridiculous is it to literally put Jason Tatum over LeBron James, <laughs> who won a Finals MVP literally like less than a year and a half ago, or a? I think it's right around a year and a half ago now, like a Finals MVP a year and a half ago, and we're gonna say that Jason Tatum is better than him now? Like, I just don't understand that. Like. Do I think Jason Tatum is going to continue to play this well and have a bunch of dominant playoff runs and be in the MVP conversation year in and year out? Yes, but I'm. There's no race. There is no race to try to. There, there's. I don't understand why people want to be the first guy to try to say that kind of stuff. Let, like, let let's be a hundred percent honest, guys. Even with how disastrous that Laker team was this year. Remember what you saw from LeBron James when he was on the court as a scorer and as a playmaker. And the things, obviously, he didn't try on defense a lot this season for, we don't even have to get into it. But if tomorrow, if tomorrow in game two of that Brooklyn series, if it was LeBron James in place of Kevin Durant with that same Nets team, would you be sitting there more or less scared? I would argue you'd be the same amount of scared, if not a little bit more because of LeBron's passing ability and how dangerous he can be in a one-game playoff setting. Like, depending on how you uh, stack him up with KD. So, like, the, the, the truth of the matter is, is, like, as great as Tatum is, this league is freaking stacked, man. At the top of the league, you've got Giannis, KD, and LeBron, in my opinion, who are still at, like, the three of the best big wings that we've ever seen in NBA history. You've got Kawhi Leonard coming back next year. You've got two centers that are unbelievable. Now, that's where it gets interesting. Like, are you, do you think I would take Tatum over a guy like Embiid or Jokic? Yeah, that's a good question. I have to think more about that. I don't have a take on it right this second. But those are guys like 
unproven guys that don't have a track record of postseason success at the highest level year after year after year after year, yeah, we can have that conversation. But come on, guys, for, for the, like, with enough of the disrespect to the guys that have proven it time and time again. I love Jason Tatum. I love watching him play. I'm super proud of all the success that he's had over the course of the last couple of years for a Celtics team that's kind of seemed like they've been stuck in the mud a little bit. But I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, top five, better than LeBron. Like, that, that's, that's jumping the gun. And, and, like, and you're seeing a little bit of it in this series. Like, the Celtics only got 19 points in the fourth quarter of game one. And a huge problem there was Jason Tatum. The Nets were successful at getting the ball out of Jason's Tatum, Jason Tatum's hands and not giving up baskets on the back end. And a bit, it almost reminded me of James Harden. Do you guys remember in the bubble when the Lakers would double team James Harden and they would pre rotate out of it and James Harden would kind of drift out to half court? Tatum's been doing some of that. <clears throat> he had a really important cut on the final possession of the game when he got that layup for the win. But if you watch the tape from that fourth quarter against the Nets, Jason Tatum only took four shots. He was one for four. He had zero assists with a turnover. He struggled in that quarter. The Nets successfully took him out of the game in a lot of ways. Now, he wasn't completely useless, to be clear. There was that play that I talked about, the play before the game winner, where the, the Nets being so terrified of Jason Tatum allowed Ime Udoka to use Tatum as a decoy on the left wing with a little off-ball screen between him and Al Horford that took Nick Claxton and Kevin Durant all the way out of the paint so that Jalen Brown had an open paint to go. Tatum is still a very effective basketball player even when he's getting double-teamed like that. But like I talked about earlier, you don't see that with LeBron. You're never going to see LeBron get completely taken out of a game offensively in a fourth quarter like that because of his ability to take those double teams in specific spots on the floor where they're very, very difficult to navigate out of, and because of his, and because he doesn't drift out of the play. That's the thing that's been killing Tatum in these fourth quarters as of late towards the end of the regular season, and here is like, he'll draw the double, and then he'll kind of drift out to 40 feet, and he's not a threat there. You've got to stay a threat. Don't be James Harden. Once you get the double team, as soon as you make that pass, cut. Because that's what makes it so that on the back end, they're playing four on five and not four on four. If you let them play four on four on the back end, then your double team accomplished absolutely nothing. So th that's just one little example. I, I, there, if I'm just t breaking down his skill set, it's not like I'm going to sit there and be like, oh, he's not as good at this as this guy at this or this or this. He's got all the tools. I'm just saying for the sake of the rankings, let's wait until he has a little bit more success. He's got a very, very talented team this year. If he's a top five player and he's got this team, he should win the championship this year. Because that that's the other thing. It's like, it's like I tell the LeBron fans all the time that are like, oh, LeBron's the best player in the league. Okay, that's great. Can I hold him to the best player in the league standard? Because if he's on the best player in the league standard, now I got to call him out for not running back on defense. Now I got to uh, call him out for taking a game off here and there where his effort's not there. Now I've got I've to hold him to that standard. That's the thing that goes with Jason Tatum. If you guys want to say he's a top five player, then we got we to gotta say that a top five player went one for four in the fourth quarter while his offense completely fell apart, only managed 19 points, and barely scraped away a win against a team that they controlled for most of the night. So uh, it's a complicated... That's why I don't want to put him on that list just yet. You've got to earn the right to be there over consistent success in, in multiple playoff runs. Uh, we're going to bring Carson back on. He's going to give his, uh, his take on this. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you on a lot of fronts. I think that the premature crowning point is an excellent one. People just are generally, I think, very overreactionary in sports. And I think that you're right about just the 
immense talent in the league right now. And there are unquestionably dudes who are just more complete offensive engines when you combine scoring and playmaking. And Tatum obviously has improved as a playmaker, but like still certainly not truly elite in that capacity. But if I were to play devil's advocate, I would probably have to disregard the sort of cumulative resume point and just look at post-All-Star break Jason Tatum and say, is that guy a top five player alive? And, you know, I mean, he is right in the of what is right up there for the most valuable archetype in basketball, I think, if you're talking about big lead scoring wing, versatile three-level guy, solid to good playmaker, really high-level defensive player. I mean... We've heard the numbers before, but post-All-Star break, he's over 30 a game on 65% true shooting. It's peak KD Kawhi raw production on better efficiency than like a Kawhi has ever reached. And like we said, really, really good defense. So I think it's a tough argument to make just because the talent in the league is so insane right now. And there are, you know, 10 guys who I'm sure everybody would like to have in their top five. But if he were to sustain this level... You know, I mean, that's a really, really special basketball player with, like, all-time potential. And I do think, it's like you said, Tatum has always had the skill set. It's just been about making the game easier, you know, finding ways to create more of those high-probability opportunities instead of just relying on the difficult shot-making. And he's done it. He gets downhill more. He gets to the line more. He is handling doubles better. He's just shooting the ball really, really well. So, I think you're right. But, I don't know. Had to play a little bit of devil's advocate there. And I do think, obviously... We can both agree Tatum is special, special basketball player. I'm with you. If he sustains it, then you, you, you're yeah. right. Uh, then he, then he is that guy. He's already yeah. a better playmaker than Kawhi ever has been. So, like, I'm I'm with you if he sustains it. My thing is like, again, first round exit last year. Some of that was talent. Not I'm not trying to uh-huh. say he should have won that series or anything, but first round exit last year. One playoff game this year, okay? In that playoff game, he took it to KD and he was a better player than KD in that game. But counterpoint, what do you think Kevin Durant's been thinking about the last couple of days? How he yeah. needs to bounce back in game two. <laughs> Kevin Durant's coming back with a big punch in game two. And here's the thing. If Tatum stands up to that punch too and he closes out the nets and then he goes into the next round and he beats Giannis in the Bucks, and then he goes into the next round and he beats whoever wins out of the, that other side of the bracket. Like now, now we're talking about a guy that absolutely is in that conversation. But like, again, it's just, it's just, and this is just my approach to it. Like there are a lot of people that look at it uh, in more of like a, you know, in the moment type of perspective. My thing is like, I talked about this a lot the other day when I was talking about like me as a basketball player, like I would never put my shoes my, myself in the shoes of an NBA player. I hate it when people even do that under the videos I post. Cause I think that's disrespectful. I have, too much respect for the guys that have worked so hard to either get their name called in the draft or have a phone call come in from a from a general manager offering them a contract to play professional basketball in the NBA. I would never, ever, ever try to put myself on that level. And I kind of have that same approach with the stars that are that are at the top of the league. Like I just I think it's disrespectful with LeBron James and everything that he's accomplished, not just in his whole career, but what he's done recently. Like he was really good this year. He's a bad GM. And him and Clutch, and with the help of Jeannie and Rob, butchered the Lakers, and they missed the playoffs. But at basketball, LeBron is still really, 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 really good. And so I just don't think yeah. it's the, I don't think it's respectful to those guys to suddenly just be like Tatum's better. You know what I mean? That, but that's just my approach. No, I think you're right, and it generally pays to hold on to your stock. You know, 2018, 19, everybody declared 
LeBron could no longer be the best player alive, and then he came back and you know title run the playoffs. How stupid was, was that in retrospect? Yeah, it was ridiculous. And yeah, I think that you're on the right side here. All right, guys, that is all we have for tonight. As always, I appreciate your support. We do have game two of Net Celtics tomorrow, I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly from the schedule. So we will be back right after the final buzzer of all the games yesterday as, or tomorrow. As always, I appreciate your guys' support, and we will see you then. volume.